aren't you glad that the grace of God can't just pack up and move to Ireland? <laughs> One grace did, but God's grace can't. Okay, let's, uh, let's start with our verse for the month. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Hebrews 2, 1. All right, you can go ahead and be seated. Um, So, over the last couple of months, we have been on a journey through the Gospels, examining the healing miracles of Jesus and what those miracles mean for us. We learned that miracles are... Yes, yes, but there's been a phrase that I've repeated over and over. Miracles are always messengers, never the message. That's right. See, you guys do pay attention. I love it. Uh, The miracles themselves were never the point. Um, Every one of the miracles of Jesus served a purpose that was bigger than just healing a broken body in a very temporary way. All of the miracles of Jesus, when taken together, were accomplishing his establishment of his identity as the Messiah. These miracles were fulfilling prophecies. They were proving his teaching. The things that he taught were being backed up by the things that he did. The miracles of Jesus set him apart from every other person who claimed to be something. But every single one of the individual miracles also carried their own messages. We looked at the first story where Jesus healed a woman who was suffering from a discharge of blood and then healed the daughter of Jairus. And in that story, we saw this beautiful truth that Jesus desires to restore broken people back into community. He took away not only this woman's physical affliction, he also took away her shame. He he took away her uncleanness. He brought her to a place where she could connect once again with people. We saw there that brokenness, though it's universal, isn't normal. And that Jesus desires to heal us from the brokenness that we've normalized. He, He desires to remove our scarlet letters and restore us back into relationship with others. Then we learned the very inconvenient truth that healing is a process. Uh, We studied the story of Jesus healing the blind man from Bethsaida. This is the only miracle in the Gospels that Jesus performs in stages. This is the only miracle that was gradual. But what we saw in that story was Jesus walking hand in hand with this man, slowly leading him toward his healing. And we saw that Jesus loved him along the way. That this man had to trust the process. He had to let Jesus take him by the hand and lead him, quite literally blindly and slowly, on his way to being healed. And we must do the same thing. Then we saw the power of faith in a shared community. Four friends carry this paralytic to Jesus. They commit a misdemeanor and they lower him down through the vandalized roof to where Jesus was teaching. And we saw that we need to be a part of a body that carries broken people to the healer. We need to have vicarious faith, shared faith, faith on other people's behalf. Every one of us at different times is going to be walking through different types of brokenness. And we need to be prepared for that. Even if we aren't today, at some point we will be. And so we need to link up and form a human chain so that when the riptide does come, We'll have people around us to help us. Or so that we'll be people who are helping others who are in need. Both are essential parts of the church. Being served and serving. And we're going to go in and out of seasons of both. Church is not just about showing up and being fed and leaving. And hopefully you are being fed. That's, that's important. But hopefully it's more than that. Hopefully you're being equipped to join yourselves together um, as a unit and stand together through the pain of life. And two weeks ago, we learned that faith and fear are not contrary to each other, that a person can be very afraid and yet still have great faith. We saw one of the most beautiful verses, I think, in all the Bible where this father cries out to God and he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. 
And we learn that faith is, is taking an action step in spite of having doubts, not that we don't have any doubts whatsoever. And how beautiful it was for a man to admit to God and to others around him that he was struggling. And how, in the midst of that, Jesus healed this man anyway. It's not about having strong enough faith in order to manipulate God to do whatever we want. It's about having a real relationship with God in which we express to Him the fullness of our hearts and we step out trusting Him in spite sometimes of what we feel. Then last week we saw the ways that Jesus uses both silence and surprise as healing tools. How he traveled out on purpose to the cities of Tyre and Sidon and met with a woman there to perform a very individual miracle. This woman showed persistence, she showed faith, but she also showed a tremendous understanding of who Jesus was, what his mission was, and what it looked like to really trust him. And we saw there that Jesus doesn't just care about the pain of the church at large, Jesus cares about your individual hurts, your pains, your needs, and He wants to heal you individually from your brokenness. I hope you'll agree that this series has been a beautiful journey. At the same time that we've been taking this journey together, there's been a different journey that most of the nation has been on together. And some of you may have been on this journey as well. That journey is better known as the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. Uh, raise your hand if you have been eating popcorn and following along. Anyone here? Okay, good. Um, some have been following it religiously. I'm sure that a number of the people who are watching or listening um, have been guilty of that right now. It's, it's taken the nation absolutely by storm. Uh, now, in case you have been under a rock and don't know exactly what I'm talking about, uh, here's the very, very brief recap, okay? Johnny Depp, a.k.a. Captain Jack Sparrow, uh, sued his very famous ex-wife, Amber Heard, for defamation, seeking $50 million in damages. In 2018, Amber Heard published an op-ed in the Washington Post, implying that she was the victim of domestic and sexual violence, and implying that Johnny Depp was the perpetrator. Now, Depp claimed to be innocent, and that this op-ed ruined his reputation, that it cost him jobs, cost him uh, movies. So, he sued her for defamation. She then countersued him for $100 million, because why not? Um, and this trial has been playing out for the last month or so, and the verdict was just settled this week. Now, this trial has been the most publicized trial since probably the O.J. Simpson trial. And the greatest reason for this has been social media, especially TikTok. Clips of this trial have been viewed over 17 billion times. That's billion with a B, 17 billion times. One popular account by itself, dot Johnny Depp one, which I highly doubt belongs to Johnny Depp, has by itself 50 million likes and more than 640,000 followers, all from this trial. Nearly everyone in the nation has been watching. Um, I showed up for work on Monday and I walked into the office, and my 62-year-old Croatian co-worker was sitting at the computer in the office. And I walked in, I'm like, hey dude, how's it going? What are you up to? And he's like, I'm about to watch the closing arguments in the depth trial. I'm like, oh wow, you too, huh? All right, Steve, enjoy that. So, uh, this shouldn't be news to any of you, but spoiler alert anyway, Johnny Depp won the case. Now, I say that in quotes because he was awarded $12 million, but he also has to pay Amber Heard $2 million from her countersuit, so he comes out ahead $10 million. 
So to say that he didn't win the trial is kind of like saying, well, that team didn't win because the other team also scored points. Okay? Amber Heard scored points, so to speak, in the trial, but, uh, but he came out ahead. But the other reason, the bigger reason, really, that I'm using quotes uh, to say that he won is because, truly, nobody wins in a case like this. There is no real winner. One could argue the opposite, that more damage has been done in various ways than any good. What's been very clear in watching this is that we have a very broken relationship with very broken people who in clear and obvious ways are intending to hurt one another. Amber Heard claimed that she was abused. And in a lot of ways, it was proven that she was. Johnny Depp claimed that he was abused, and in some ways, he was too. It's very clear that he self-abused in many ways. Both were, or are, still substance abuse addicts. Both were, or are, desperately insecure, depressed, emotionally unstable, and ill-equipped to be in any kind of healthy relationship with another person. And though there was a winner declared in this Ballyhooed lawsuit, none of the brokenness that was there changed with a verdict, whether it would have been in favor of either person. As it stands today, with the information that we have access to, Both Johnny Depp and Amber Heard are still incredibly broken people. All of their dirty laundry was spread out for the whole world to see, and then a jury decided whose lawyers argued better, and I think we'll agree Johnny Depp's lawyers argued way better, and sometimes we wondered, who hired these lawyers for Amber Heard? Like, who are these people? But a jury decided whose lawyers argued better and who should be awarded money. But no one, not the jury, not the judge, not the lawyers, nor Amber Heard, nor Johnny Depp, could actually go back and undo any of the damage that they did to each other. And in fact, the monetary awards that were decided will never actually pay out. Johnny Depp has to pay $2 million. Amber Heard has to pay $10 million. Civil appeals are going to keep those things in the courts indefinitely, forever. At no point in their lifetime will a dime come out of their pockets in spite of this verdict. So neither of them will actually even pay a monetary penalty to each other. After six weeks of public scrutiny, truly nothing has actually changed, except that there are more people who think that Depp was right than there are people who think that Heard was right. After the trial, Depp stated that the jury had given him his life back. And if by that what he meant was that now he can go back to making more movies and now the public will worship him again, perhaps the jury did give him an avenue for that. But what reason do we have to believe that Johnny Depp, given back those things, will be any less of a broken, substance-abusing man who desperately needs the hope of the gospel now than he was before? See, the fact is, there is only one way to actually be healed from damage that has been done to you. There is only one way to have your life given back to you or to be given to you for the very first time. Only one way to be restored. Only one way to be set free. Only one way to not just be given a good name, but to be given a good future. And that way isn't found in a courtroom. It can't be given by a jury of your peers or by a judge in our legal system or in the court of public opinion. The only way to be healed is through the transformative touch of the healer. So to conclude our story today, we're going to look at the last healing miracle of Jesus. 
one that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, each of them giving various details in their accounts. And so we're going to look at all four passages, all four accounts of this story, and then we'll spend probably most of our time um, in the book of Luke. So, turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 26, and we'll be looking at this account in verses 47 through 56. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Now turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 43 through 50. Um, Eli, would you mind turning the rest of the lights up? I think it's the first setting. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Now Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 beginning in verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who'd come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then finally, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest, And the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So, same story, all four Gospels, various details given in each account. Now there's a number of, I think, fascinating details about this story. This is the last miracle that Jesus performs before his death. One commentator noted that at this point, Jesus is about to have his hands bound in chains, and then after that, have his hands uh, uh, nailed to the cross. So this is the last moment of his life that his hands are free. And in that moment, he uses those hands to heal the servant of the high priest. And that detail is another fascinating element. This man who had his ear cut off, Malchus, is the servant of the high priest, Caiaphas. That means that he is there in the garden representing the man, Caiaphas, who is going to sentence Jesus to death. That makes Malchus the enemy. And yet, though he's the enemy, Jesus heals him. We're going to examine that element a bit further and see that that is a mind-blowing display of grace and a great example of what it looks like to love your enemies. Another fun detail that isn't immediately clear to us in English is the play on words that takes place because of the man's name. Um, And I just lost my place in my notes. Give me a second here. Um, So, the man's name. Uh, We know his name because of... I just did it again. We know his name because John, we find out, is known to the high priest family. They are associates somehow, and so John tells us that his name is Malchus. Now, interestingly, the name Malchus literally means king. So what we have taking place in this story is that a servant named king is healed by the servant king. Isn't that great? Uh, This event also, I think, strikes a pretty heavy blow to the have enough faith and you'll be healed crowd because this miracle is unsolicited. The, The recipient of this miracle does not display any kind of faith before or after. And the, the recipient, again, is an enemy of Jesus who is there to do him harm, not to seek his power. And yet, Jesus healed him nonetheless, showing that God can heal absolutely anyone regardless of their faith or their lack thereof. And as a side note, I think also that this passage should be an object lesson for how Christians ought to teach, uh, treat their enemies. Malchus, very clearly an enemy of Jesus, there to arrest him and bring him before the high priest, who has been plotting his demise. Malchus is under no delusion of why he is there. Malchus represents death to Jesus. And so Peter, in his zeal to defend his master, violently attacks the enemy. But then Jesus sharply scolds Peter and says literally, no more of this, and then heals his enemy. So can we pause here for a moment and admonish all the Christians who are listening, stop violently attacking your enemies. Verbal assaults, character assassinations, ad hominem arguments. Jesus is looking at all who might be doing that and saying, enough of this. He wants to heal his enemies, not hurt them. 
And there's a lot of pre-resurrection Peters who are in the church thinking that it's their job to stand up for Jesus and defend him from the attacks by his enemies. So we can't miss what Jesus says to Peter. Don't you know that if I wanted, I could ask my father and he would send more than 12 legions of angels. That is over 170,000 angels. There are accounts in the Old Testament of one angel taking out hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Okay, so Jesus is using very clear language to say, listen, man, I don't need your protection. If I wanted, I could wipe out everyone in the entire world. Stay in your lane, dude. So God, I think, is saying the very same thing to many, many people in the church. You focus on loving your enemies. Let me take care of any kind of vengeance or judgment, right? So all of those are good lessons that we could take from this story. But as it pertains to the heart of this series, I want us to see a couple of things that are relevant to the journeys of brokenness that we're currently walking in. I want us to see in these passages the heart of the healer and the hope that he offers. And I want us to be able to take very practical steps from resulting uh, uh, from what you hear. So, let's dive in. If If you're taking notes, here is point number one. Christ is a healer of both victim and perpetrator alike. Christ is a healer of both victim and perpetrator alike. In the Depp Heard trial, the court was in part determining who the real victim was and who the real perpetrator was. And then they were doing what little they could to come to the aid of the victim by awarding them a monetary sum. But I think you'll agree that no amount of money could undo any of the damage that either of these two people had done to each other. No amount of public perception could heal their pain. It's like being handed, it's like handing a band-aid to someone who's been bitten by a shark. Like, thank you for the thought, but that doesn't help at all. And then, what happens to the one who's determined to be the perpetrator? Well, that person becomes a pariah. They become the object of scorn and different types of abuse. Amber Heard is now being viewed in the public as a monster. She has uh, claimed to have received death threats and incredibly, despicably hateful messages. Whether she's guilty of the things that Johnny Depp claimed or not, we still have to recognize the fact that still remains that she is a person loved by God, worthy of the gospel of grace. And yet, so many people view her only as one thing now. What these two very rich and famous people got in this trial was the very best of the legal system, the very best of public court, the very best of resources and publicity and platform. They got the best that humanity could offer. And what are they left with at the end? Money they already had. Hooray? The world can't offer any type of hope to a victim, much less to a perpetrator. A victim is given band-aids, and a perpetrator is given a scarlet letter. It's It's hopelessly broken. But the beauty of the gospel is that Christ can offer true healing to both the victim and the perpetrator without taking anything away from either. Only Christ can offer true healing to a victim. And only Christ can offer true uh, healing to a perpetrator. And especially is it true that only He can do that while simultaneously also making sure that justice is served. Take a look again at this story of Peter and Malchus. There's some really interesting elements of people who are playing multiple roles in this story. We see that Malchus is the servant of the high priest. Um, It says in verse 49 and 50 of Luke chapter 22, 
When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? That, we find out in John, is Peter saying, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, uh, Peter, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. That servant of the high priest is Malchus. So, Malchus is a servant of Caiaphas. That means, like we've already talked about, that he is there representing the one who is going to sentence Jesus to death. Malchus, very clearly, is the enemy. But, also, at the same time, Malchus is a victim. He is a victim of Peter's sin. Malchus was not a soldier. He, he's not a warrior. Most likely, Malchus is unarmed. And what happens? Peter takes a sword and slices him open, completely unprovoked. Regardless of why Malchus is here, he does not deserve what happens to him. He doesn't deserve to have Peter slice his head. Even though that's true, it's still true that Malchus is a perpetrator of great sin against Jesus. It's both. And yet, Jesus heals him. Thus, Jesus heals someone who is not only a victim, he heals someone who is a perpetrator. Malchus is both a victim and a perpetrator, which, can I just say, is so often the case. You know that old saying, hurt people hurt people. Now that's not to give someone an out and say, well, you can't really blame them. It's not their fault. It's, it's their parents' fault. That's, that's not what I mean. Because each person has to stand before God guilty of the decisions that they make themselves. We are all responsible for the decisions that we make. But let's not gloss over the fact that each person is affected by their context, their upbringing. And so often, because people haven't been healed by Christ, the pain that has been caused to them becomes pain that they cause others. That is why it is so important that Jesus heals both the perpetrator and the victim. Because that is the only thing that can break the cycle. Our legal system's role, out of a misguided view of the Messiah's role, and in performing this miracle, Jesus is not only restoring what's broken in Malchus, Jesus is also reversing the brokenness of Peter's sinful decision. Um, one commentator points out that had Jesus not healed Malchus, Peter likely would have been arrested as well. Now, you might be wondering, yes, Jesus did heal Malchus, but Peter still cut the dude's ear off. That's still assault. Why wasn't Peter arrested anyway? Well, another astute commentator points out that that would have created a bit of an interesting spot in a court had Peter been arrested and accused by Malchus. Because it would have been pretty interesting for Malchus to accuse Peter in front of a judge of cutting his ear off as he stands there with two perfectly good ears. What's he going to say to the judge? Yeah, I had my ear cut off and then Jesus healed me and put my ear back together. To... To prosecute Peter is to admit the miracle, right? And why would Caiaphas' uh, uh, servant do that? So, in healing Malchus, Jesus prevents any of that from taking place. He very likely prevents Peter from uh, being arrested. He, he saves his friend's life here. Prevents him from meeting incredible consequences, which could have been imprisonment and perhaps even crucifixion. Why does Jesus do that? Well, part of the reason is because of what's going to happen later on in the story. Peter is going to be the leader of the early church, and it's going to result in countless salvations. Could it be that Jesus means to rescue sinners out of their terrible mistakes and turn them into gospel agents who will change the lives of others? I absolutely believe so. 
So here's what I want you to walk away from this first point with. First, if you have been traumatized by someone in some way, Christ can heal that wound. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that all the damage will be undone and you'll never hurt again. That's not what the promise is. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship in which this took place will be restored. That relationship may very well be over. But he absolutely can heal your broken heart. He can absolutely set you free from the bitterness and the self-loathing that comes as a result of this wound. He can restore you to spiritual and emotional health. He doesn't just offer you a band-aid and say, hey, here's something to help you feel better. Only Christ can draw out the poison and draw out the darkness that fills your soul as a result of being sinned against. If you have been sinned against, Christ offers hope. And it's not just some sum of money that will never be paid. It's not the court of public opinion and what people think about you. It is real, actual, true healing of taking what was broken and putting it back together again. If you are on the other side, if you are the perpetrator of some type of trauma against someone, if you have sinned against someone or some people, Christ can restore what you have broken. Now again, that doesn't mean that all the things go away or that every relationship is now restored to the way that it was before. This does not mean that there are no consequences. I want to make it very clear again that that Christ doesn't heal by removing justice. The healing that results from Christ doesn't come as a result of, well, I fixed it, so no harm, no foul, everyone go home. No, we're going to see that Peter is going to face very public humiliation himself. But Peter won't be tied to his failures forever. Peter can and will become a rehabilitated person. No human system can change a person's heart. No amount of jail, no amount of community service, no legal penalty, no penance can transform someone. Though, let me be very clear, those things are absolutely necessary and appropriate at various points. But only Jesus... Only Jesus can take someone who was defined by sin and give them eternal hope for something greater. So, whether you are the victim or the perpetrator, or even if you are both, it is Jesus that offers the only way to be healed. Point number two. Jesus heals our damage by absorbing it in himself. Jesus heals our damage by absorbing it in himself. In a civil case, the United States legal system attempts to take physical, emotional, or verbal pain and then put a monetary price on it. This Type of abuse equals this type of money. And as long as you pay it, justice is served. But I think we'll all agree that that really doesn't work, right? Sure, a million dollars might help you feel better, assuming you ever see a dime of that million dollars to begin with. But even if you receive that, that's not going to stop the hurt. The only one that can stop the hurt is Christ. And what's so amazing here is that the way that Jesus heals the hurt is by taking it upon himself. In this passage, there is an unmistakable detail that we cannot miss. And that is that the healer is still healing even while he's being stabbed in the back. Think about what's going on here, the context of what is happening. He is being betrayed by Judas Iscariot. 
Now, Judas has been with him for three years. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Day and night. He's referred to, if you noticed, in every single one of the accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all refer to Judas in the same way. One of the twelve. He is one of the twelve. They're saying that on purpose to show that Judas is in the inner circle of Jesus. As close as it can possibly get. He is one of Jesus' closest confidants, one of his closest co-workers, co-laborers, and co-ministers in this mission. Jesus has seen Judas at his very best and at his very worst. They have slept in the same places, eaten at the same tables, or as we saw last week, dining couches, which Ikea, if you're listening, ding, dining couches... They've had deep conversations late into the night. Judas has been backstage for nearly every single one of Jesus' miracles and sermons. And just a few hours prior to this, Jesus washed his feet. That is one of the most humbling acts of Jesus. The most humbling act of Judas' life. This is one of the two most humble acts in all of history, that and the cross. Jesus just washed this guy's feet. And even after all of that, Judas does the most stunning thing imaginable. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. Jesus even expresses the despicable nature of this lowest blow of low blows by saying, in here in uh, verse 48, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Seriously, dude? After all that we've been through together, you're going to betray me with a kiss? With a greeting reserved for family? Now, I actually misspoke in a pretty terrible and inaccurate way just a few moments ago because I said that Jesus is doing this healing while he's getting stabbed in the back. But that's not actually true at all, okay? Stabbing someone in the back is what a coward does. We're going to see an example of this. A coward sneaks up on someone and stabs them when they aren't looking. And we know what that looks like in this very passage because that's Peter. Peter does this. Did you happen to notice that Luke specifies which one of Malchus' ears got cut off? It says in uh, verse 50, one of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, Malchus, and cut off his right ear. That's not just the throwaway detail. That is very, very important because there was only two ways that that could happen. One of two ways that this could happen. One would be that Peter is left-handed. If he's left-handed and he pulls out his sword and he strikes, he cuts off the right ear. Now, if Peter was left-handed, it would probably have been mentioned at some point that he was left-handed because that was a very rare thing in the Bible. Do you know what the other way is to uh, cut off someone's right ear? To strike them from behind. That is how you cut off someone's right ear. And so the, that detail sets up the scene in a very specific way. It, it tells us that Peter, more than likely, isn't standing right next to Jesus and facing Malchus. He's somewhere off to the side. And Judas and Malchus approach Jesus, and then Judah, uh, Peter attacks Malchus from behind. That is what a coward looks like. There are some people in, in teaching this passage that say that Peter is brash, but he's brave. Here's a guy who's trying to fight off a cohort of soldiers with just one sword. But that's not actually what it looks like. If you remember the way that John wrote this, look at, look at what John says. It says uh, that Jesus uh, asks them, whom do you seek? And Jesus says, I am he. And it says in, in verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, 
they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, so these soldiers all fall back as a wave of Jesus' glory hits them. And so, Peter, seeing that happening, is emboldened and ready to show how he's going to fight. And so, he approaches from somewhere over to the side and he attacks Malchus from behind. Or, the other way that this could have happened is, he does approach from the front, but Malchus turns his back to him, flinching or trying to run away or self-protect, because, again, this man is unarmed. And Peter attacks him from behind. No one is coming up against Peter. He's not bravely standing against soldiers. Yes. So, in an earlier um, part of this very same night, Jesus, speaking very figuratively, says to the disciples, do you have any swords? And they say, we have two. And Jesus is like, okay, that's enough. Put those away. But they have two swords with them. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Peter, is attacking the, the, the servant of the high priest when he is not looking. Real brave, Peter. That's why Peter is scolded by Jesus. Jesus says to him, No more of this. Enough of this. Sit down, dummy. That is an example of cowardice in this passage. Judas is not the coward in this passage. Peter is. Judas doesn't stab someone in the back. No, Judas stabs Jesus in the face. This right here is the deepest insult ever recorded. That is not an exaggeration. At no point in human history has there been an insult more heinous than this one. This, this is someone who God in the flesh has loved as deeply as Jesus has loved Judas. Someone who is in actual close friendship to the God of the universe, would walk up to him, smile, and say, Greetings, Rabbi. And then kiss him on the cheek. That is utterly despicable. The deepest insult ever. Way back in the garden, if, if we look at sins that did a lot of damage, Adam and Eve could probably... Uh, have the title given to them for sins that committed the most damage. But when they sinned, they didn't do it in the face of God. They were off by themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that God was unaware. God is there, but they're not looking God in the eye and doing this with a smile on their face. They do it, and then they hide like cowards. Judas looked Jesus in the eye and used a kiss to sentence him to death. The only scene that comes to mind as a picture of what this might look like is the scene in which Scar kills Mufasa. I know that that's a silly example, but it's the picture that comes to mind, right? There's Scar with Mufasa, literally with his life in his paws. They're on the edge of the cliff. He's Mufasa's brother. Close family relationship. And what happens? While Mufasa is expecting to be rescued, because who wouldn't, Scar looks Mufasa in the eye, smiles an evil smile, and wickedly purrs, Long live the king. Throws him to his death. That is Judas. This scene is the greatest betrayal in human history. Now, here's why that's so important for us to see tonight. As Jesus himself is being victimized in the most insulting moment literally ever, Instead of doing what every single one of us would have done, which is to respond in anger or to shut down or completely lose his cool or melt in sadness or something, in the midst of the most insulting moment 
in history, Jesus heals someone else from their pain. If that doesn't blow your mind, if that doesn't humble you, if that doesn't cause you to rejoice in thanksgiving, that in the midst of the worst moment, Jesus' thought was, I'm going to heal someone else. Someone else who, by the way, is also here to hurt me. Let me speak for a moment to the people who are dealing with the tremendous guilt of having committed painful acts of sin against God and against others. You probably feel that God is ashamed of you. You probably feel that your sin is so grievous that the wounds that you've caused can never be healed. Maybe you feel that you can never be forgiven, never be normal, never be whole or complete. Maybe you feel that this will haunt you forever. Maybe you even feel that the world would be a better place without you. Can I speak a word of encouragement to you? Even in the very moments of heinous sin, the healer is putting broken people back together with his grace. Your acts of selfishness and cowardice may have cut someone deeply, and you may be feeling the sting of Christ's rebuke, but he is able to heal the wounds that you have caused. And is able to heal you. You see, Peter is not done being a coward. In, in the very next scene, we see him succumbing to his fear in another way, by denying three times that he even knows Jesus. As Jesus is up in, in, on trial in the house, Peter is approached by a servant girl who says, you're, you're one of Jesus' men, right? And Peter's like... Me? No way. I don't even know the guy. Don't miss the irony taking place there. Peter just cowardly attacked a servant. Now he's running scared from a servant. And three times he does this. And then the rooster crows. And verse 62 says, And he went out and wept bitterly. you might know what that feels like. I do. Realizing the depth of the hurt that you've caused, seeing the pain that you've created, seeing someone that you love crumpled because of your, cho your choices. And the truth of what you've done hits you between the eyes and you fall to your knees and ugly cry weeping and wailing, snot running down your face, your chest feeling like it's exploding, and all you want to do is die. That's where Peter is. But God isn't done with him. Jesus rises from the dead, and then he sits down with his disciples for breakfast, and he looks straight at Peter, and I guarantee you, Peter is staring at the floor tightness gripping his lungs. And Jesus asks him a question that must have landed like a Mack truck. Peter, do you love me? Three times Jesus does this. Once for each one of his denials. And Jesus graciously undoes the damage and he restores Peter. And not only does he restore Peter, he transforms him. Peter goes from being a coward to being a rock. The leader of the early church. A man who would lead thousands to salvation in his lifetime and billions more after and then bravely face martyrdom by saying, I'm not even worthy to be crucified in the same way as my master. Come at me. Friend, do not let the enemy fool you into believing that your sin has created a wound that Christ cannot heal. 
Don't let the enemy fool you into thinking that your sin is too great, that God is done with you, that you don't have an incredible place in the the plan of God for the future. Because if you let the healer work his miracles, you do have that place. Even in the midst of being sinned against, Jesus is graciously healing. He's graciously and miraculously restoring brokenness, even the brokenness that you caused. Don't lose hope. Now is the time for you to commit yourself fully to the healing process that the healer offers. A healing process that can restore you and the person or people that you have hurt. Now let me address those who are broken by the sins of others. Jesus does something in this passage that you can't. He heals others in the midst of his betrayal. As a close friend is betraying him, he is pouring out grace that restores the brokenness in someone else. You do not have that ability or that bandwidth. Jesus does this because he's God. But there is something else that you can experience. Restoration and ministry. Like we've talked about, you can experience the healing power of Jesus as he heals the wound that someone else has caused you. But you can also experience being a part of someone else being healed because of the work of Christ in you. As we've seen in this story, there's not only two perpetrators, there are two victims. There are two victims in this story, Jesus and Malchus. Both of them are being hurt by someone directly. Both are being sinned against. Both are being wounded deeply. Jesus is being wounded by Judas. Malchus is being wounded by Peter. But did you notice the sequence of the healing. Jesus himself is victimized and he takes that wound as only God in the flesh could. But then after he's victimized, he heals the other victim. In this passage, Jesus is both the one who is betrayed and the one who heals. Now, like I said, you you are not God. You cannot heal yourself, much less anyone else but you can participate in the work of Christ in other people's lives. After you yourself are healed by Christ from that trauma, He can use you to be a part of the healing process for someone else. You can be both the one betrayed and the one who brings the healer to others. As we reach the end of this series... I want you to see, above all, regardless of what role you play in the brokenness, there is hope. You are not a lost cause. Your brokenness is not normal. Your sin does not define you. You can be free. You can be restored. You can be used by God for powerful purposes. The way that it is now does not have to be the way that it always will be. But that healing is not going to come by accident. It's not just going to happen by osmosis. Healing is a painful, vulnerable, emotional, sometimes embarrassing journey. But there is a lifeline if you're willing to take it. There are people here in this church who love you enough to walk with you. There are resources that you can take advantage of. There is help to be free from addiction. There is help to be set free from trauma, to restore trust, to have a new future, to come to life in a way that you never have before, to be a part of the healing journey of others. Do not let this opportunity pass you by. Do not let fear prevent you from coming to the healer. Don't let self-sufficiency or pride or fear of being vulnerable from opening up to others. Don't let the thought of, I can handle this on my own, keep you from experiencing real healing. No, you cannot do this on your own. 
At no point in human history has anyone ever healed on their own. And I can promise you, you will not be the first. So I beg of you, come out of hiding. Come out of the shadows. Admit your guilt. Admit your addiction. Admit your pain. Admit to your trauma. And in doing so, take the first steps down a long and arduous road of grace that is difficult, but oh my God, so worth it. The healer stands ready to heal. Are you ready to be transformed by his healing touch? I hope that you are. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are the healer. You are the God that heals the perpetrator and the victim alike. The only one who can offer transformation. And God, I pray for any person who has never experienced the healing power of being set free from their sin by giving their life to Jesus. God, if there are people watching right now or listening online right now that have never come to the place where they have surrendered to you and said, take my life, be my Lord, heal me as only you can. God, I pray pray that they would come to that place of trust right now. God, that you would break down any walls of fear and bring them to a place where they give themselves to you completely and in doing so, come from death to life. Lord, I pray for any of us any of us who are walking through brokenness as a perpetrator, as a victim, or both, some mixture of these roles. God, I pray that we would open ourselves to you, that we'd open ourselves to others, that we would experience the healing process that only you offer through the church, that in community, Lord, we would heal that we'd have the courage to reach out and say, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's walk through this. Really, truly walk through this. And God, I pray that we would see in this body people set free from addiction. I pray that we would see in this body people set free from generational curses. That we would see in this body people set free from destructive repeated habits. And Lord, that we would see in this body true healing, healing from people who have been hurt so much by the sinful choices of others. People close to them. People married to them. God, I pray that in this church we would see the healer at work. Would you accomplish that? Would you lead us to that place of humility and surrender? And would you give us the grace upon grace to walk this long journey together that we might see a beautiful future in which we are used to bring that healing to others who desperately need it? God, thank you for what you're doing in us here in this church. And I pray that the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen. We would stand, we will close in prayer, or in worship.